Hey everyone, whether you're the LA Clippers or a heavyset man in a comedy who just ate some ribs, it's no fun to choke. Today's book is about how to do your best in sports and life. It's The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and someone who still doesn't understand how tennis is scored, and I've played it on the Wii at least 75 times. <laughs> Wait, do you really not? I don't. <laughs> And I guess it's true, this book does not explain it. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I get better at sports just like the rest of you, out of a book. <laughs> Whatever your hobby or profession, the inner game of tennis teaches you how to get out of your own head. So I assume it's by JFK. <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. If you want to see me live, I'm going to be at Bananas in Rutherford, New Jersey, June 24th and 25th. Rutherford. Uh, just be careful driving around there. I hear it's pretty rough. Oh, no. <laughs> driving around there in your furred. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you want to send us a note or a book recommendation or love letters... Or as this book calls them, zero letters. <laughs> Email us at thebookpilepodcast.gmail.com. And now, without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from the inner game of tennis. Okay, before this lesson, I have a little activity. So, listeners, wherever you are, stand up if you want to learn how to do something cool. Okay, first, flex your left quad and at the apex of your movement, contract your right calf. Okay, now contract your right quad and at the apex, contract your left calf. Okay, isn't that great teaching? I just taught you how to walk. <laughs> Using instructions, the same way we teach people to play sports. <laughs> and in fact, if you're rich, send your kids to my walking camp. <laughs> that brings up lesson one. Get the conscious brain out of the way. So obviously that's a horrible way to learn to walk. No baby learns with instructions. We learn by feel and by experience. And in fact, if we were always thinking about how to walk, we'd walk really janky. <laughs> a fun game to do is next time you kiss, really think about how you kiss. <laughs> but he points out, you know, you go to a sports class and the first thing they do is they give you instructions that are so unnatural to the way we learn best. They're like, okay, keep your knees bent and your arms straight, and the angle between your hand and racket should have a cosine of, you know what I mean? <laughs> and basically his main argument is, you want to learn sports with the unconscious, not the conscious brain. Mm. And so most of his tips are about getting the unconscious brain out of the way. Like he gave this example, this guy comes in, people keep telling him, hey, your backhand is too high, and he keeps trying to lower his backhand. Finally, the author just shows him a mirror. And the guy sees, oh, my backhand's high. And learning visually, he fixes it way faster than he would have with instructions. Mm -hmm. And also, don't you wish that worked with other things? Like you show someone a mirror and they're like, oh, I am racist. <laughs> <laughs> I compare it too to like uh, Tony Robbins, who puts on these massive conferences, $5,000 a ticket. And he tells you how the way to become rich and successful is with positive self-aphorisms and to set goals and whatever else. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, no. <laughs> is that what you, it seems like the way you got rich was by having these conferences? <laughs> 
Yeah, it seems like the way to get rich is telling people the way to get rich is aphorisms. <laughs> I do think about that, though, how it's almost like the body speaks a language, like this kinesthetic language. And you can either learn in that language, or you can do this double translation thing of, how do I translate this language into ideas and mm-hmm. concepts, and then translate that back into the language? Yeah. It is like an extra step, like you were saying, with learning a language. Like, as adults, we're so concerned with the structure of everything, when we would probably speak better if we did what babies do and just mimic the speakers of the language we want to learn, like literally making baby sounds until we got it right, which would probably take a couple of embarrassing years. But no one is laughing right. at, a, at a baby. I mean, I do. <laughs> you can't talk right. <laughs> Do the kids in your house develop speech faster or slower? (laughs) (laughs) They they develop speech and deep shame at the same rate. (laughs) Ah, the Montessori method. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson two, focus on something else, which is what I tell someone when they ask if they should start playing tennis. (laughs) And actually, my son's just started taking tennis lessons, so I guess I now have to start wearing a sweater like a cape. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about with the arms tied around my neck? I didn't grow up around rich people. Is that a real thing? Have you seen that? (laughs) Am I the representative of the rich in this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Don't laugh at me, condescending. Your dad's a doctor. I've played the game of life. I know what that salary is. He is a doctor, but he also had six kids before he was out of residency. (laughs) So it took a while for him to get uh, the lifestyle. (laughs) So I don't know if it's real or if it's just in movies, like where a wealthy country club guy will wear shorts because it's hot, but he still brings a sweater just in case. (laughs) I think in the movie, that guy is always supposed to be a douche, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like he maybe has like Ray-Bans upside down on the back of his head. It's like, dude, just just leave him in the car. (laughs) Well, no, you put him on the back of your head to scare off predators. (laughs) So the, the thesis of this book is that there are two selves, as Timothy Galloway calls them self one and self two self two being the body the unconsciously acting body that just knows how to expand and contract your lungs without you thinking about it and self one is the conscious mind that now is aware of your lungs now that i just said that and i bet you tried to manually breathe in a nutshell we've all experienced doing something well during practice you know whether it's tennis soccer piano or even speaking but when it comes to game time right to perform publicly that's when yourself one can take over that's your conscious mind giving your body that extra pressure of you need to play this perfectly or you got to swing at this ball as hard as you can yeah it's like when i'm typing on my laptop just fine until i see that someone else has joined that google doc and then i can't go two words <laughs> That happened the other day. I was shooting hoops on the driveway and shooting well, and then my roommate stepped outside and I missed everything. (laughs) (laughs) I skateboarded for a couple years as a teenager, not well. (laughs) 
and there would always be a group of us trying to ollie or like jump our skateboard over like a cinder block. <laughs> and it was always in the school parking lot. The street was adjacent to the parking lot, so people were driving by all the time. But they would often slow down as one of us was approaching the cinder block. Mm. So you knew that they were becoming like drive-by spectators. And I never uh-huh. once made it over. <laughs> and there's this weird sense of shame like, oh, I disappointed those strangers. <laughs> if I lived in like The Walking Dead, what I would do is I would shoot hoops all the time. And then as soon as I started missing a bunch, I'd be like, oh, someone's watching. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book, Galloway, he explains it as when you try to like make your body do something that it already just knows how to do, you end up like stiffening muscles that are unnecessary for the job, which makes the rest of your movements less fluid. So you're getting in the way mm. of your own body. When he sees a tennis student gritting their teeth, he'll say to them, Tightening face muscles won't help your backhand. Hmm. It, it was fascinating to me to, to to sort of think of that logically. Like, yeah, why do we do that? Or those guys who scream at the gym before lifting a bunch of weights. Like, no one needs to do that. <laughs> like, your vocal cords aren't helping your biceps. <laughs> So then the challenge becomes, how do you quiet this part of yourself that is saying, okay, just run fast, swing hard, you know? And one thing that doesn't help someone who is struggling with this is to say, hey, it's okay, just relax up there. (laughs) There's this book that's not worth reading, but it's called Trying Not to Try. (laughs) And the first chapter is about this principle, and then it gets into some weird sort of pseudoscience. But he starts out with this example of this game that you play. Imagine like an air hockey table, but like a quarter of the size. And there are two metal handles that a person on each side grabs. And there is like sort of a disc in the middle. So if your heart rate increases, Mm. it moves toward you. If you're able to make your heart rate go down, it moves toward the other person. So it becomes this competition of who can not care more. (laughs) Never play it with Gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) that's just the best way that I can put it because it's like it's competitively relaxing (laughs) I would say to the other person do you want to make love but not with me so they get excited but I don't (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a healthy sentence for any relationship So one method uh, uh, that has actually worked for me that he talks about in the book, a method of quieting self one, the conscious brain, is to focus the mind on something other than the physical task at hand to just allow the body to do its work. So for example, if one of his students was having trouble with a swing, he would give a light suggestion on how the racket should be held, but then he would serve the ball to them and tell them to just focus on which way the ball was spinning. And the spinning, mm-hmm. the like which direction the ball spinning doesn't matter. It's just taking their mind off of something. It's almost like your conscious self is the busy body in a sitcom on the day of the wedding who just has to be distracted mm-hmm. so the people who know what they're doing can get the job done. So you can apply this to so many other things, as Dave mentioned before. Uh, when I'm playing the piano in front of people, I'll focus on how breathing feels and sounds. 
And this is true too. If I'm at the chiropractor, something that's important when you're getting your bones readjusted is relaxing. Um, otherwise, it could, it could like injure you. So if I'm getting my neck adjusted, it, if you had this happen, Dave, they'll sort of cradle your head and wait for a minute and then snap it to the side. Oh my gosh. It's like in the movies when, when they do it to kill people, but they, I guess they do it just right so that it doesn't. <laughs> you want to tense up because you, your body is anticipating this semi-violent thing to happen. <laughs> but you also know that you need to relax so that it doesn't end up being counterproductive <laughs> and doing damage. Doing the thing you fear. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that absolutely works for me is that w once he cradles my head, I'll start wiggling my toes on my left foot just one at a time, starting from my pinky toe, <laughs> and it works. It, it loosens everything, uh, and oh. he's able to pretend to you know be Jason Bourne for a second. So the distraction of moving your pinky toes allows you to detense in the neck? Exactly, yep. Interesting. If I were a chiropractor during that first patient session, right before I'm about to tweak their neck, I would look them in the eyes and say, remember me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson three, visualizing is almost just as good as doing it. <laughs> That's how I feel about helping the poor. <laughs> I had a line here because I was expecting you to just snicker pervertedly. <laughs> Pretend I did. What's the line? Oh, I was just going to say, I'm just going to skip over Dave's low-brow snickering. <laughs> but really, I was the one thinking it. Doesn't... <laughs> so Galway says, quote, the native language of self too is imagery. And self too is the unconscious self, right? Correct. And that's what we were just talking about. We learn by imitation. Thus, we can improve by visualizing. Mm. So he says, picture the desired outcome. We've mentioned before the study that was conducted at the University of Chicago, where they had a couple of groups practice shooting free throws for 30 minutes. Well, they had the first group practice every day for a month, physically practice. And the second group only shot free throws on the first day. And then they sat at the court every day and imagined themselves shooting free throws. And then on the 30th day, they shot them again. And the group that had practiced every day improved by 24%. The group that only visualized still improved by 23%. <laughs> Do you think at that moment they were like, I can't believe we got away with this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was an ongoing tension with that first group screaming at the second group to like, why do you need to be hogging all the Gatorade? <laughs> Michael Phelps, up to a month before a meet, he would um, already imagine himself competing. And not only that, but he would imagine how he would react to any adverse scenario that might come up. Wow. Like, what if he only won 22 gold medals instead of 23? <laughs> How depressing that would be. But his, his coach said that by the time Phelps appeared at a meet, he had already swum it hundreds of times in his mind. Wow. And quote, at that point, he's on autopilot. His brain just knows what to do. And this came in really handy during the 2012 Olympics in Rio when Phelps jumped into the 200-meter butterfly and immediately his goggles broke and filled with water. 
And he essentially had to swim blind, but because he'd already (laughs) visually prepared for this scenario, are you allergic to stories about stoner (laughs) have-beens? I'm allergic to stories about the successes of others. (laughs) (laughs) I say that half-kidding because I hate the phrase have-been, because Uh whoever says that as an insult is like, yeah, but you are a (laughs) never-were. I know. (laughs) I don't know if you heard when you were interrupting me with your sneezes, but (laughs) Michael Phelps, his goggles break immediately and fill with water, so he has to swim blind. But since he had already visually prepared for this exact scenario hundreds of times... He still won and broke another world record. Wow. But if you could imagine this, though, when he got out, he threw his goggles into a wall because he knew he could have swam even faster. Man. I guess he didn't visualize checking his goggles before the race. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it. That's the moral of the story is that practicing or getting the reps in even just in your head is almost just as powerful as actually doing the thing. And if you do that enough, you could win a gold medal and still be angry. (laughs) That is the book pile guarantee. (laughs) All right, lesson four, let go of judgment. This is a short one. Have you ever been on a court or a field and you see that person who every time they mess up, they're like, oh, come on. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I bet that's really helping them. <laughs> I say that having 100% been that guy. <laughs> anyway, one of his main points is when you're always judging what you're doing, you're also overthinking. Mm. And so he recommends if you take a shot, notice if it goes in or out, but don't call it a bad shot or a good shot because he says that emotional labels the first step toward overthinking everything. I do that with my kids, like playing baseball with them. I it, it's it's more challenging than it seems because you also can't encourage them with lots of words like that's good and that's great because for every good and great, you are also implanting into their head that if they do the opposite of what they just did, it is a bad thing. And so mm-hmm. I've tried really hard to explain to my kids that like whether it's an instrument or a sport, there is no moral good or bad. you can play more effectively but like i'm not going to get mad at you Uh galloway talks about how he had a student who could not stop hitting the ball with the side of his racket (laughs) and he was saying like in this mindset of like there's no good or bad he's like on a technical level that's actually a very difficult thing to do (laughs) (laughs) Because it's such a smaller space than the Uh area of the entire racket. (laughs) Very comforting to that student, I'm sure. (laughs) But I thought that was just such a great illustration of like, none of these movements matter. And it's weird to put them into moral terms. And all it does is put even more pressure on the student or the child. And they're just going to tense up even more and do even worse. Isn't it odd how the emotional reflexes of guilt that we feel when we've done something very wrong also kick in when we like eat an extra cake? (laughs) (laughs) I should reiterate 
if I throw a ball to my five-year-old and he swings and misses, I do make eye contact and let him know there's no good or bad, but I am very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) There's no good or bad, but if there were, you would be bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, random facts. I got a lot out of this book, but since I'd never heard of this guy, before I changed my life, I kind of wish I could watch him play tennis. (laughs) Because he's won no big tournaments. He doesn't seem to have any famous pupils. So part of me is like, I guess I'll try this. (laughs) Wouldn't you be suspicious if I wrote a parenting book? (laughs) I don't remember if we brought up this story before, but it's like how you and I both had the same experience of reading the how-to screenplay book, Save the Cat, and then you find out halfway through the book that it's the guy who wrote (laughs) Blank Check. (laughs) <laughs> and he he deliberately doesn't reveal it until later in the book because in the introduction he just vaguely says most books aren't written by someone who have sold actual screenplays anyway chapter one <laughs> so this is crazy uh pro tennis players have half a second to react and return a serve from a ball that's going 150 miles an hour. Wow. It doesn't even seem like that can be physically possible. I would love to see just regular people even attempt this, because I imagine I imagine my move would just be to take a wild guess. <laughs> Actually, I take it back. I would probably just hold the racket in front of my face. (laughs) My move would be to try to get hit so I could sue this famous tennis player. (laughs) Well, I've read that a big part of how they read the serve is they're reading the body language before the serve is even completed, because otherwise they just wouldn't have enough time. I've read that the best baseball hitters, you have so little time to see the baseball coming that you're reading the tiniest little cues. Like apparently the spin of the ball with the laces creates different patterns on the ball. And so you're looking for those slightest little hints of what the ball is going to do. Whoa. There's a quote from the book. If while learning tennis, you learn how to focus your attention and trust in yourself, you have learned something far more valuable than a forceful backhand. The backhand can be used only on a tennis court. The skill of effortless concentration is invaluable in whatever you set your mind to. Mm. I'm like, Clearly, this person has never been backhanded. (laughs) I will say, though, that I think he's right. I've been surprised by how much playing sports has impacted other areas of my life. Like, a big part is just learning how I learn. I'll notice something that helps me in some kind of sport, and then I can immediately turn around and be like, oh, this helps in writing, or it helps in music, or comedy, etc. Well, yeah, and for me, too, you know that quote, fail faster, succeed sooner? Hmm. If I want to fail fast, I usually try and play a sport. <laughs> yeah, you you kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be successful because I sucked at this all day. <laughs> I will say uh, uh, <laughs> I have a, a real-life testimonial of the visualization thing because my brother and I, there was like a summer where we went bowling once a week and one week all the lanes were full so we we just sat there and we imagined ourselves getting strikes <laughs> that is such a grew up without money story 
or other friends. Absolutely. <laughs> and we had to, like, looking back on it, we should have at least had clipboards or something so that it looked like we were <laughs> bowling scouts. <laughs> I've always wanted to get, like, 10 friends, go to a random high school basketball game, sit in the stands with signs and cheer like crazy for one player on the bench. <laughs> Anytime they're on the court, you're all screaming their name. They do not know you. And then you leave immediately and they never see you again. <laughs> that would be amazing if you could get a picture of that kid's face beforehand. <laughs> and just have a giant banner of it. <laughs> Actually, if I did it, at the end of the game, if the kid approached me, I'll turn to him and be like, let's just say your life is going to turn out just fine. And then I'd wink. (laughs) So the end of my bowling story, and this is a true story, we sat there for an hour and then I bowled the best game I've ever bowled in my life to this day. Wow. But I also haven't repeated that experience or practiced. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, quickly for context, you know how a bowling score is like 300 is the most you can get. My average score up until then was like 140. I got 235. So I got almost 100 points more than I had ever gotten. Wow. And you're legit a good bowler. What do you mean? 140 is your average? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, me too. (laughs) Watch that you can't do it when I'm watching you. (laughs) Oh, no. That would be the worst because first I'd be like, we're going to sit here for 75 minutes first. (laughs) And then since I'm watching every time you hit yourself in the head. At one point, he says, basically, if you have a bad habit, don't try to break it. Just start a new habit. And he points out, you know, a baby doesn't break the habit of crawling. The baby just starts walking. And I think that's poetic. But like, if someone has the habit of smoking, should they simply start the habit of not smoking? (laughs) (laughs) They just need to start crawling. What if that fixed any bad habit? Well, it's much harder to smoke when you're also using your hands to walk. (laughs) He quotes D.T. Suzuki from Zen and the Art of Archery, and he says, quote, As soon as we reflect and deliberate, the original unconsciousness is lost and the thought interferes. The arrow is off the string but does not fly straight to the target. Calculation, which is a miscalculation, sets in. Hmm. It's almost like saying the human brain is amazing, so stop using it. (laughs) (laughs) It does almost feel like you have a car with amazing autopilot and you keep switching to manual. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually read that book, Zen and the Art of Archery, and I thought it was funny. Because what's less zen than killing people with arrows? (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the inner game of tennis. One, get the conscious brain out of the way. Two, focus on something else. (laughs) So not tennis. Three, visualizing is almost just as good as doing it. Four, let go of judgment. And five, there is no good or bad in sports. But if you play a certain way, you will make more money. 